You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Cause why? Cause Koyo will fucking kill you. Hey guys, it's Doc Coyle, your boy here, the X-Man. Welcome to the show. Sometimes I sing on these intros because um, I'm a weirdo. So I hope it's hope it's entertaining though. Sometimes I try and think what's a what's a jam I haven't heard in a while, and then I'll just I'll I'll just do that. You know, uh, I'm in a pretty good mood. Been getting in the holiday spirit. I don't know. I'm 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 not a Christian. Not particularly religious. I, I I would say I'm I'm the other way, you know. But I love Christmas. You know, I love uh the trees and the lights and the songs and the movies. By the way, some underrated movies, um Christmas movies, Harold and Kumar's 3D Christmas, highly recommended. Uh The Night of with Seth Rogen. Recent one, very fun. So, you know, just let's not ju- just enjoy the classics. Let's really get into some of these these newer ones. But yeah, I'm 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 in a good mood. Got some show announcements for my band Bad Wolves. You can see how you guys hear this. That's my, my papers. I got I got I gotta read this stuff off, you know. I'm not gonna act professional here, guys. Nope. This is not network news. So yeah, so we have Bad Wolves, we have Four festivals confirmed so far for 2018. The first one is April 21st um, in Las Vegas, Nevada, and it's called Los Rages or Las Rages, and that's with Five Finger Death Punch and Judas Priest, Saxon in this moment. Then on the 27th, we'll be playing Welcome to Rockville in Jacksonville, Florida, with Ozzy Osbourne headlining and some sick bands like Hailstorm. The day after that, we're going to be at Fort Rock Festival in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Bullet for My Valentine will be on that. And Five Finger Death Punch will be on that. Godsmack, Trivium, Hatebreed. And then we'll be doing Carolina Rebellion on May 5th in Charlotte, North Carolina, featuring a lot of those same bands as well. So, so yeah, things are starting to happen. Things are starting to roll in. I guess that's partly why I'm in a good mood. But I think I'm in a good mood because I'm just in a good mood flow state you know you just i like i like to be doing things guys and sometimes i get real lazy and i don't want to do nothing and then i feel crappy about being lazy and then i feel crappy and it's it's a it's cyclical so the more stuff i'm doing i think the more in a in a in a good mood i am and so you know i'm trying to let that filter through here i can't just be all doom and gloom but you know with some of these rants i have to you know, give you my, my thoughts of the moment, which I'm going to do th- this second. Um, I was on the old Twitter and I saw a post from a, I'd say someone more on the, the right wing side of things. I'm not going to say it was who 
insinuated in a post that uh, people on the opposite side of the political spectrum, based on some uh, science experiment or something or some survey or something that liberals are crazy, you know, more mentally ill. Mentally ill was the phrase that was used, which may be true. I don't know. Um, but I think what really bothered me about that and things like that, and I think you can go the other way, you know, like, like, let's say there's some post out there or some daily show piece about how conservatives are rednecks or whatever, kind of looking into the other as, as this form of a stereotype or finding, this is a very common trope, let finding the worst person or the dumbest person or someone who finds, who says the craziest thing on the opposite side that agrees with you and then presume that that is supposed to be the placeholder for everyone else, that that is representative, but it's actually a tactic. It's a debate tactic. You know, it's a form of, of straw man. Let me find the weakest, craziest, most extreme version and say, well, that's what we're fighting against. So clearly they're messed up. I think you can go both ways with that, but I truly believe the biggest problem in this country, and I can only speak for this country because where I live, I can't speak for the rest of the world. So I'm, that's the, when I say in that context, that's what I mean, that the biggest problem we have right now, and I'm saying bigger than global warming, glo bigger, you know, if, you're, if your is, issue is immigration, if your issue is guns, whatever, foreign policy, the biggest issue we have is divisiveness between people who disagree with each other. And a lot of times that correlates to things like sex and race and sexual preference and things like that. But the fact that if I, if you're, you know, a Jewish person and I use a slur against you, that's a big problem. If you're a woman, I say that hey, you're a, you're a cunt and also, Ooh, you can't say that, but we don't really have any problems saying, so, you know, using a, a pejorative about someone who we, who we disagree with. You know, like a Republican libtard. And I think I've talked about this a little bit before, but I'm I'm going to reiterate it because I, it's actually a, a problem I don't know how to solve. I think a lot of the other social problems, there's pretty clear solutions. This one I'm not totally sure about, but I'm going to keep saying it over and over again and calling it out. Is that even if you disagree with someone, even if you think you hear someone you're like, I don't, I, I find that what that person believes to be morally wrong. It can't be a representative of every single person who is aligns with who, who might vote the same. You know, everyone's different. It's a it's its own form of stereotyping. It's its own form of bigotry, right? It's like saying, oh, it's a I, there's a black person there, so they must be whatever negative stereotype. And that's the thing is we have stere stereotype people we disagree with, and it needs to stop. It's embarrassing. You know, it's, it's a form of ignorance. It's a form of stupidity. And I, and I, and I got to call people out and I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep doing it. So there you go. That's my, it's my good do-gooder speech of the day. Don't, don't call each other names based on, on what people believe. I haven't, I haven't yelled at, uh, Phil from all that remains on, on Twitter. He called, uh, <laughs> what he, a, a name he thought was funny is calling, uh, effeminate, Vegan men who are liberal, soy boys, right? That, and I guess, yes, that, maybe that's a little funny, but it doesn't help. It does not help. All right. So 
before we get into our conversation with Billy, Mr. Billy Grazie, Grazie Day. That's how I said it. Grazie, Grazie Day. Billy Grazie Day of Powerflow and formerly, actually, no, he's, he's still in Biohazard. Um, I just have to talk about our sponsor real quick. Our sponsor is Rockabilia. And if you don't know what Rockabilia is, they are the biggest distributor and place where you can get merchandise for rock bands, metal bands, for pop culture, everything. They have half a million items. And it's the real deal stuff. This is official merchandise. This is not bootleg. And guess what we have now, guys? We have an X-Men coupon code, right? So you get 15% off if you go to rockabilia.com. And the code is PC. E-X-M-A-N, PCX-Men. Now, I don't know if they're trying to, that, that was a dig at me. They're like, listen, they've got this social justice motherfucker over there talking all this shit, so we're going to give him the code PCX-Men. But that's what the code is. They didn't ask me. So use that code. You know, get you some, get you some God forbid merchandise. You know, my old band. You like, you know, I don't like your new band, but I like your old band or whatever. You know, you know, get you, I'm sure they have some, you know, was that ugly Christmas sweaters? You know, get an ugly Slayer Christmas sweater or something. Check that out. It'll be cool. Anyway, oh, and I also, uh, after you're done checking out Rockabilly, I also have to give a shout out. I had a fan reach out to me named Andre Babb, and he just sent me a donation. You know, he was just like, yo, man, here's some, here's, here's some cash for the show because I like the show. And that was very nice of him. So I just want to, I, I forgot to sh- shout him out. And, you know, I haven't, I haven't solicited yet, you know, maybe one day I'll, I'll join up one of those, uh, Patreon or something like that and start asking for money or something, but we'll see. Cause you know, there's a lot of time I, I, I invest in this and I don't do it for the money, but you know, it'd be nice, you know, get me one of them yachts like Joe Rogan. That'd be, that'd be dope. So we have a guest. His name is Billy Grazia Day. <clears throat> Nailed it. And he used to be, well, he isn't, why do I keep saying used to? I guess because he hasn't played with Biohazard in a while, but he is most known for a band named Biohazard um, that changed the game in rock and metal and hardcore. And he has a new band now called Power Flow. And yeah, he's out there kicking ass. He does MMA and he's just, he's one of the nicest guys um, in this world of, of heavy music. And he's one of those guys where, we get together and we just start spitballing. And so this is really kind of us hanging out and turning on the mics and we just start talking. We could, we could really do this all night. So maybe we'll have to do a part two, but I really hope you enjoy this conversation from Mr. Billy. Grazie de. So yeah. Billy, so actually, oh, see, I'm, I'm gonna try and say your name. You tell me if I'm doing it right. Gradia. Oh. <laughs> now I'm fucking up. <laughs> oh shit! All right. Gradiatse. No. Nope. Say it. All right. So you know who said the funniest enunciation? That, but that feels it? phonetic. Grazie day. Grazie day. Yeah. Gra- oh, I. Oh, I think I did. I add just, a D. Grazie day. You did it. Grazie day. See, I spelled it wrong. That's why I fucked it up. I actually spelled it wrong here, and I looked at my spelling. So I'm gonna do. So I'm, I'm gonna cut that out. I'm like, 
Yeah, you can edit. That's the great thing about podcasts. So, uh, Billy, grazie. <laughs> grazie. Listen, this is going to help you. <laughs> Fucking. No, because I'm, 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 for something, I'm putting the D before the Z. That's yeah. what's screaming. Jose grazie fucking grazie nails day. it. He, he goes, Billy, grazie day the, from Gra- the pizza parlor. Grazie day. So you got to think about yes, it like that. Yes, think pizza Italian. You'll get it. Grazie, <laughs> grazie day. day. No, Perfect. it's, a, listen, it's a beautiful name. And it, and it is very lyrical and melodic and and rolls off the tongue, you know. And thing is, usually, you know, trying to be culturally sensitive, I try and you know, you know, lean into these enunciations. <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a one of those sensitive guys with them. Okay, well, you can slaughter it. Well, yeah, but the thing is, one of the great things about having this show, you bring people on, you realize you've been pronouncing their name wrong the whole time yeah and then then we nail it down and then we send like like having christian on the show yeah and he's like oldie wilbur's and, and like you hear him say that you're like no not gonna do that <laughs> yeah, it's so dude i'm in a band with him and i still mess his name up yeah christian old wilbur's wilbur's see you know that's what i'm saying but we do we do what we can for the people that we bring on this show and the funny thing is so the last time i was here we were talking and Basically, we should have put some mics up because mm-hmm. I, you're one of those people that pretty much any, anytime we talk, we could probably record it and put it out because <laughs> we always, you know, we, we don't, we're not much into small talk. We like to kind of peer into each other's brains and, and, uh, and, and pick each other's minds about different subject matter and, and kind of, cause yeah. we're, you know, we're just interested in, in things on, on, on a bigger level where we're, you know, I'm personally fascinated with the history of, um, this music and this culture and you being a band. I mean, so I don't, I don't know if I, I told you this, but so the first, the first time I ever went to a show was Pantera, White Zombie, Deftones, yep. 96, yep. you know, then after that, I discovered the hardcore scene. I didn't go to another concert. I was going to shows. I was not going to concerts. I was just going to like VFW halls yep. and weird, weird God spots. God forbid it wasn't together yet. We were together. Yeah. Um, we might have had a different name at the time. We, but it was the same guys more what was more the name less. of the band first it was called manifest destiny oh yeah and we were in high school yeah. and then i heard that before we changed the name to uh insalubrious which was based off of a carcass record yeah and this is like we were making like shitty demos and we were not good i mean each time we made a demo the band got b- better but we were literally just like a, a garage band yeah, yeah you know not you know just trying to do something but not really taking it seriously then in 98 when we Got our bass player John. We became God forbid, and then we started to sound like God forbid, and pretty yeah. much from from there on out. So, but during that time, I was just going to hardcore scene shows and just very underground. The first like next big show I went to was Biohazard at the Birch Hill nightclub. Yeah. It was probably right around that time, around 98, yeah. 99. And I just remember Crazy for, shows for, back then, first right? time I ever been to the Birch Hill, and there was probably. You know, it was packed. There was probably like 1,200 people or something there. And that place, I think, held 1,400. But four t- sold out there was uncomfortable. Yeah. It was not a fun. There was no fire marshal issue there. It was always. A- Listen, that's Jersey. We just yep. say, like, hey, hey, don't worry about don't it. We'll take care it. of you. Yep. We'll put, like, hey, I'll put something. I'll take care of this week. Don't worry about it. All right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm presuming that's what went down. I don't know. They definitely did some shit that was underhanded. But <laughs> yeah, now it's an old folks home, like a retirement home. Is it? Yeah. I've, but it's the same people that from there that started the Starland. Starland, yeah. But yeah. then they, but sold, they it sold the property to AEG. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. The old Birchill, like that, that location. Yes. They sold it. Yes. Well, I, I presume that. But but it was the same people that started the Starland, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But anyway, so I saw but the Starland. Sorry. Okay. We're going no. on a tangent, but that's part of the podcast thing. Yeah. 
it was an old rock and roll club. I know. Hunkabunka. Hunkabunka, yeah. Yeah. Which I never went to when it was a regular dance no, it club. Was, I think it was closed for most of the... It was a thing, though. Like, every now and again... In the had, 80s, right? Not even... even rec- I think it was it was open around the same time as the Bird Show, but it was just a dance club. Oh, like... And every now and again, they would, they would have, like, a show, like, I think... Yeah. Like, maybe, like, you know, Real Big Fish or something. Something random yeah, would yeah. just go on there, and then obviously... Then it became phenomenal now it's i think what well, i think it's the best venue in the country in my in my mind and, and for people listen to this uh bert Burchill, uh starland ballroom is in it's in new jersey Saraville, new jersey and i the capacity can shift depending how they figure it and actually i've heard this depending on the type of uh audience member so they've sold it out at 2800 for um What's that band? Yellow Card? Yeah. Because all their fans are little kids. Yeah. And they've sold it out at 1500 for Hatebreed because all their fans are big, thick, <laughs> cheesesteak-eating motherfuckers. <laughs> two for one. So yep. they've, I, I guess they factored in. But the thing that's great about the venue, anywhere you are, because they've designed it a certain way, you can see from everywhere. Yeah, that's a great place. And you can hear from everywhere. Yep. And it's, and it, despite it being able to hold, uh, as many people as a pretty big theater, mm-hmm. it actually has a very intimate feel. So one, of, I think it's the best venue in the country, and I was lucky to live right next to it for a long time. And they always get great shows. Yep, uh, and especially in in our world. But speaking, dirty jerseys, highlight. <laughs> speaking of its of its predecessor, the Burchill, I saw you guys. Forget who opened up, um, but I remember feeling a. You guys were just. It was it was a difference from seeing bands in the hardcore scene or or in the, not that you guys weren't part of that scene, but you guys seem to be doing something more professional. I don't know. It just seemed like there was a different level and like there were fans. Like, <laughs> and I, I I don't know. There's something about the the hardcore scene where the fans and the bands. It was like the lines were kind of blurred, mm-hmm. but it was like no, these guys, people were here for them. They loved them. Your, everything was together. The band sounded great, and I was just like, "Oh, this is." I'm at a rock concert. <laughs> I think I think we had feet in different genres, you know, like like we could pull it off in front of an AF crowd and play CBGBs, or play the small rooms, and bring it in a hardcore way. And then we could play with Slayer, and pull it off in a in the metal rock side of things, you know, and, and put on a show where the entertainment value is important, you know, because yeah. you have to bring it when there's a barricade that's 10 feet from the stage and you can't slap the kid's hands and they can't make it on stage to stage dive. That adds a big element to the energy of the show when it, the crowd is participating, as you know, in the show. But when you, you're separated, you gotta bring it in a different way. Just like you got in on festivals, when the barricade's 20 feet from the stage, it's a whole different thing. And yeah. it's you know it becomes more animated, and you got to bring the energy up to a different level. But so Biohazard, I think, and it's a it, we rocked it on different levels of stages. And Birch Hill was like a cross between. It still had the intimacy of a hardcore show, but it was professional, sounded good. Yeah. It the the lights were cool. There was a, still a certain thing, and we always rocked. We always brought light guys, so things had. Um, elements of both the you know the, the more punker hardcore side of biohazard but more professional metal side and hardcore was always like um who gives a fuck you know what i mean i remember 
being on tour with Agnostic Front, and Vinny turned to me once, the guitar player of Agnostic Front, and he said, he's tuning his guitar, and he looks at me on the side of the stage, he's like, he's tuning his E string up, and he's like, close enough for hardcore. <laughs> and it was beating, it was a little bit out, but that's, that's the whole mentality, you know what I mean? It wasn't about, it was more about the emotion, whereas metal was more about fucking playing it tight. And, Precision. Yeah, and being in tune, you know? So we kind of like straddled that line between the two. And the people who were more metal saw the, the imperfections in us and that drawed them to us in one way, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then the hardcore kids, the kids who were more into the emotion only and not the skill, saw that we could play a little bit tighter than most everyone else in the hardcore scene. So that was attractive to them, you know? And I think the, the blurred line of like, we didn't give a fuck if we were into if you're into hip hop metal hardcore it was all just about our, our thing you know mm -hmm. and our thing was we just called it biohazard so when you guys were were starting so i went back you know every now and again i'll do a little research for this show and <laughs> and just listen to someone's catalog and and i i love to hear how bands evolve and change and and where they started and where they where they ended up and listening to the first album the the self-titled it, the thing that's kind of really great about it is there wasn't much of a learning curve. It seemed like you guys pretty much figured out the sound of the band right away. Um, um, and I, that, that, that could be wrong. But in many ways, you guys might be the most crossover of crossover bands in mm -hmm. that you had... like So when the band started, was it... W did you feel like a hardcore band? Or did you feel like, no, we're, we're definitely going to straddle the hardcore metal worlds from the jump? Because being in, in New York, I feel like what you had the whole New York hardcore thing, but you also had White Zombie coming up there. You also had Typo. You also had Life yeah. of Agony, another band that straddled the line between hardcore and metal. You also had Vision of Disorder that also straddled the line yeah. between hardcore and metal. It, it, I've said this so many times, but it's straight up, dude. We did, Nothing was preconceived. We didn't sit down and say, let's try to be like this. Yeah. We just let shit go. But who are you playing with? We... Like early on, like I'm talking about late '80s, early '90s. Like, I, what what bands I, were you playing with? Okay, so I was big into like the, the Lower East Side hardcore scene. I tried out for Breakdown, and that fell through. And I'll never forget. After that, I was like, the, the, I remember the dudes in Breakdown who was a huge fan. I was like, they they were like, listen, I, I told them I'm like I got the songs down. You know, I'll come up. They were from the Bronx or up. You know, whatever. And I was like, I'll come up. You know, and we'll jam. And like, no, our guitar player's coming back. I'm like, you're not even gonna try me out? I'm like, they're like, nah, he's coming back and he's like the main, you know, the original guy. So I was like, oh man, really? I could be the fucking next Jimi Hendrix of hardcore and you're not, <laughs> no, I, and you're not even gonna try me out? It was cool, we're friend, we were friends. So that didn't work out and then we formed Biohazard. So it's kind of like, okay. But you joined Biohazard where they were already a band, right? No, we, 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 the drummer was jammed with Evan this drummer was named Anthony Mio from uh, from Canarsie. So Anthony and uh, Mio and Evan were jamming together, and then Mio and Bobby were jamming together, and then Evan and I were jamming together. So the, everything just came together. And, and I remember um, Evan, I worked in, on A Street in uh, Manhattan at this place called um, Flip. It was like a punk rock like like clothing store. Mm -hmm. Like they sold records, they sold used clothes, they sold jewelry. It's like a typical village in the early, like late 80s style, like punk rock store. And were you living in, in Brooklyn? Bro you were in what part of Brooklyn? At, at, at the time, I was in Park Slope. 
Okay. So Evan was working down at this place called Crazy Eddie. Remember Crazy Eddie's? Yeah, the, the, the electronics. Yeah. They had crazy, those crazy commercials. He worked at, the I think, the original one. And some dude, some like, he was like a metal kid. His was Danny. I'll never forget this. He told me, oh, and I was trying to, I remember, I think I tried out for Warzone too, but I was playing in different, like, pickup bands in the new in the hardcore scene. But you sound, so, but you do sound like you do come more from the hardcore scene. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, okay. I I love metal, but at the time, if it wasn't hardcore or punk rock, I hated it. I was very closed out to anything else. So we eventually got together. Um, I brought that thing into Biohazard. And the other guys liked the hardcore and stuff. They were more, it was more like they knew about the Cro-Mags and Carnivore. To them, that was it, you know? So... And to me, on the opposite side, I remember Evan turning me on to, uh, Bobby turned me on to Priest. Uh, sorry, Maiden. Evan turned me on to Priest. And then Sabbath, who I knew about, but I was just like, eh, I'm not really into it, you know, whatever. But the more I listened to it, I kind of like, it kind of grew on me to the sense of like, all right, you know what? Just because it's not punk rock, just because it's not hardcore, I suddenly became more open to it. And then I fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. From then on, it was like, wow, it fucking worked. In the same respect, I don't, I don't know if those guys would say I did the same for them with the punk rock and hardcore, but it, it just became the same thing. So we all kind of were into the same type of thing. The drummer wasn't into the hardcore as much as he was the metal, and um, and then soon after that, that fell through, and Danny from Biohazard became our drummer, and that's when we really became Biohazard. When was that on the first album, or yeah, Danny's Danny's been playing with us since the first record. Okay. Um, he was also into punk rock and hardcore, but big time into metal. Um, and then all of us equally, which I haven't mentioned, we're all into like everyone from BC Boys, Run DMC, Sugar Hell Gang. That was a common thing for us in different circles. And it was like such a thing. And I'm sure Jersey was the same way, but in Brooklyn, it was like there was one corner kids in the neighborhood. They were listening to fucking disco um, and nobody really mixed with those dudes. <laughs> but there was another corner that was fucking Maiden and Priest and the Metal and Sabbath. Another quarter which was like punk rock and hardcore. And another corner which was like hip hop. The three corners, not disco, would mix. And everybody would hang out, you know, whether it was based around sharing beers, smoking angel dust or weed or whatever. Those it, those three corners mixed. Nobody really fucked with the disco dudes. It was more fighting, you know, just... Some of them would go, but that that was my mixture of different being into different types of music. That's how I look at the birth of Biohazard. I remember um, sitting down and, and writing songs and writing music together, and we found Biohazard, um, the sound, like you said, it came out. It What it came was, we, it was a certain kind of feel when we would come up with riffs. Whoever brought the riff to the table, like I'll play a riff, and it, it would... Like a dog that hears its name for the first, you know, for the, the owner comes home from work and the dog runs to the door. Then you're sitting down, you're watching TV or reading the paper and then, you, you know, you call your dog's name. The dog looks you're like, and the dog looks up, the ears per- perk up. That would happen when we were, someone would play a riff. We would be working on something and someone would play a riff. But what's that? What is that? Let's do this. And then Danny would lay a beat to it. And like, no, no, try it like this. So we would jam that way. And that whole experience, which I think a lot of bands that have made it can relate to, it was more interesting doing that than it was 
buying beer at the bar or, or trying to buy beer at the store when you were underage. We got ourselves more into making music together that pulled us off the street and causing trouble. And that, if we didn't have that, we would have ended up like most of our friends, either in jail or fucking strung up on drugs that we were all on at the time. Um, and it became a, a, a subconscious path that pulled us into a better way of life for us. Mm -hmm. And that became a cycle. You know, you write a song, you're like, wow, that's cool. I'll never, I'll never forget this feeling. We were, we did, we recorded our first demo with Josh from Typo Negative Studio. He was in Brooklyn in, uh, I can't remember what section, but and I remember going to New York, going to Manhattan, riding the train, listening to it on a fucking cassette. And I remember thinking to myself, holy fuck, I made it. This is my demo. <laughs> And as shitty as it sounded, I was like, "This is I'm listening to my music. This is fucking amazing." How so, old you were at that time? Nineteen, nineteen. Yeah. So, the uh, so did that did that feel like an escape? You know, because for you guys, the the real correspondence with hip hop was this idea of urban living, of of dealing with uh, violence and crime and and poverty. Yeah. Was that? Was that what you guys were looking for? Was this like, like you said, because I felt the same thing growing up, you know, maybe, I don't know if it was bad as Brooklyn, but growing up in, in New Brunswick, New Jersey, where a lot of people were getting into bullshit and, you know, fucking around, selling drugs, doing this. But I was just kind of encased in this world of comic books and metal and that you just, you, you stay out of trouble by just being creative and productive. Is that, I feel like that's what you're, you're, you're kind of getting at a little bit. Yeah. You, you asked about the parallel with hip hop too. Like we felt akin to like, we noticed a lot of the hip hop that we were listening to were singing about the same shit that we were going through. And it, it became like, so how we dealt with our, our world, we wrote about the things that we were experiencing. Um, that helped us escape some of the bullshit um, I think, you know, being more into like going into the jam room and jamming, we used to play, you know, play on um, Ace London on Quinton Road. And we were there three, four nights a week. And then we'd hang out and fucking go home and look forward and go back to work the next day and do that again. And that was up, became our highlight. So instead of like, you know, and I've done so many fucked up shit, but, being, you know, doing speed and fucking heroin in, in Lower East Side. And, you know, robbing people for fucking money to support my lifestyle. That shit was no longer important to me. I got a better high writing riffs and writing music with the guys in Biohazard. That became a much more gratifying experience for me. And I unintentionally um, found myself on a better path. Do you think if the band didn't come about, you would have kind of fallen prey to, to crime and drugs and 100%. all that? 100%. I, I remember my um, a good friend I used to do dope with um, hung himself. And he, he 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 didn't OD, but heroin fucking put him in. He, his, he was so sick of fucking his life and the shit that he was going through. And I remember he, he, he lost custody of his son. It was a big battle, some crazy shit in his life. And he, I got word the next day we were partying the night before and he went home, hung himself, high on fucking dope. But it wasn't that, it's not like he didn't shoot himself in the arm and, and OD that way, but it killed him. <laughs> Sorry. Excellent, excellent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was, by the way, that that was Billy's ringtone and that was sick. Yeah. My wife's is uh, half her teacher. 
So. Oh, there you <laughs> so go. She'll probably call in a bit. So, um, yeah, so he he hung himself. And soon after that, and then all the time, there's another experience I was with, um, and maybe this is not un- uninteresting for people, but we're on the subject. So I remember one time um, we copped dope in Houston Street, and we got beat. I was with this chick I was dating, and um, so... It was all our money we put in to buy fucking dope. And we got beat, and I remember fucking being furious, pissed off. What, you just got into a fight? Like someone beat you up? No, beat, sorry, beat, we bought... Bad drugs? Bad drugs, yeah. Oh, okay. So it was supposed to be fucking heroin. It was fucking, like, just cut. So you get sick from it, you feel it, it tastes it, but it's, you don't get high. Um, so I remember it was all our money that we put in for this fucking, to get high. And I remember in her car, driving, I waited for the light to change, and I said, well, no. And there was a bunch of dudes on the corner, and that you know you you have the guy. If they don't recognize you, it's, it's, you're, you're you're it's a gamble. You know what I mean? If somebody's there that you know, and then you bought from them, they they vouch for you, whatever. So I was on waiting for the light to change. I was gonna fucking roll over all of them, just fucking plow through them, and get out and fucking rob them and t- get my money back and pull whatever drugs I can. But I remember sitting there waiting at the light, and she's screaming, "Don't do it! Don't do it!" So to answer your question, yeah. Hundred percent. Biohazard saved my music saved my life, and it was with the guys in Biohazard that same thing with the other guys. Bobby, Evan was fucking dealing coke. He had a heart attack. He working at a lumber yard in Brooklyn. How, how old was he when he had a heart attack? It's like fucking. It was cocaine heart attack. I mean, oh, so, it wasn't like yeah, a, yeah. Wow. So he had rushed to the hospital. I remember that. So the early days of Biohazard were life lessons for me, um, and the, and it was like a wake up call. And if, so if, if it wasn't for those experiences, I for sure wouldn't, wouldn't be here right now. Wow. That's a... Uh, Hence why I'm straight and sober. Yeah. <laughs> how, how long has that been? Well, that's a whole other story. Oh. But five years yeah. now. Well, well, we'll, we'll get in, 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 into some of that a little a little later. But um, there's some things about, about the early years because like what you said, that, that cross-section between hip-hop, um, the kind of hardcore punk... And then the and the whole metal world, yeah, exactly what you said. Very very present in New Jersey as well because we had two bands that were very very inspired by Biohazard, as you well know, E Town Concrete yeah. and Fury of Five. Yep. Um, and that was and obviously they were influenced by you guys, but they're uh, likewise they were also influenced by that environment where the the lines were kind of blurred between the cities and the suburbs and yeah. the the culture you know it was you know in, in in a way like i was almost i think naive when i was young yeah. because everything was so integrated in that it was probably and i'd say there were probably less white people where i lived and there were everything else but at least everything else it seemed like oh here's there are Hispanic people, and not just there was like these are Mexican people, these are Dominican, these are Puerto Rican, yeah. there are black people, here are Indian people. Everyone was, and because of that close proximity, I just think you got a bit of everything. Yeah, and uh, and and I think that's a reason why uh, that style of music where we were blending these genres and stuff. I mean, are as far as you know, are you guys the first prominent band to? blend hip-hop and and heavy music in 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 that way or is there someone before you that you can look at because i was trying to think about it and i know rage wasn't around then no, not, th- there was like 
um, I remember Anthrax in Public Enemy did something. I mean, a band where that's what the band sounded like. Not yeah. one song. No. That's what. So we, it wasn't intentional, though. This I know. I'm not, I'm not saying we weren't like marketing guys that said, "Hey, let's mix this." No one's done it yet. Yeah. Other bands came along and did that. Limp Bizkit, who I like, and they they became huge off of it. But to me, it was real. It was real influence. You know, um, it was the way we delivered it. We felt we, you know, for being into like you know, NWA, Ice Cube, Ice T, um, all the early records from Power. I remember going, you know. Early Bowers days, we would blast more hip hop than we and we'd play Chromex, you know, Age of Quarrel, and then Power by Ice T, and going to a show and um, Public Enemy. I loved um, Beastie Boys too, well before that. Sugar Hill Gang, Run DMC, but Run DMC and Aerosmith had the fucking Walk This Way, Anthrax did and they did Bring the Noise, but they were like it was kind of like a more it was a more of a it was. It was like a mashup. Us, it was like a yeah. It was a mashup. Kind of it was like a business thing. Hey, let's do this, and it was a one-off thing. But um, it's still. But despite that, the, both those events had an influence on the culture, and it opened. Course, yeah. And it, that introduced. If yep. it wasn't for that, a lot of white people in the suburbs might not have gotten into hip hop. You know, I think. Yeah, Beastie Boys were big with that, though. Yeah, of course. You know, of course. Um, and I and but but weren't actually were they with they were a root Rick Rubin. Yep. Group too. So I mean, yeah. Rick Rubin had a finger in the in the Aerosmith thing as well, yeah. and Run DMC. So, but yeah, that's but that's also it's not just Rick Rubin. He gets all the credit, but it was Leo Cohen and Russell Simmons, mm-hmm. and those three were Def Jam. Then they split up. They kept Def Jam. This is this is now this is this one is all gonna make sense. You're gonna like oh, so Rick went on to Def American. Mm-hmm. At the same time that they had a management company called Rush Artist Management. They managed Biohazard. Oh, so for us to from be, the beginning, yeah. Oh. So for us, it was like this is like fucking. We're with fucking L Cool J, Run DMC, the bands that we fucking loved and looked up to. These they, they were and like, they saw something you guys. Yeah, they 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 liked that we were like urban white kids that had similar experiences, similar um, lyrics, like we were singing about the same plights that we had. As white boys from the fucking neighborhood. Plus isn't, it, plus, isn't it just like, and maybe this is a New York thing, maybe it's like a, you know, Italian thing, I don't know what it is, but it's, there's a certain vibe, there's a certain kind of uh, attitude mm-hmm. that, you know, is a street attitude, is a hip-hop attitude that just fits. And to me, actually, and this, this is something I, you can either confirm or, or disconfirm, my, my homeboy, uh, Beto, who used to play in Marauder and Madball? Yeah, yeah. He was saying that, and this is one of the things I think. I think one of the reasons why Biohazard were so successful was that, like an NWA, the music and then the image of the band, the way you know tattoos, mm-hmm. looking like the uh, there was an authenticity to everything. That hey, if some shit went down, these motherfuckers would beat you down with some lead pipes in a, in an alley, and yeah. and it didn't, and that kind of correlates but um beta was saying that one of the bands that marauder actually was kind of almost presenting that style and imagery even before you guys do you know anything about that marauder wasn't around before us Re- okay okay it came out after us okay see beto he's see now we gotta get beto on the show <laughs> see, re- so retell the story they they we didn't have that was we didn't portray any image you didn't even think about it no dude i believe me all this in i haven't come out and said this but 
the fake tough guy shit, bro, I've seen since day one. Mm-hmm. I've watched dudes come up and they learn from other people how to be tough guys and they have this whole thing and they kind of market themselves as that. Dude, I'm not a tough guy. For years, I carried myself as a tough guy. I did tough guy shit. I fucking did stupid, mm-hmm. sl- tough guy slash stupid shit out for dr- to support drug habits, to, to fucking whatever. Things that I'm very ashamed of, I'm not proud of, but they made me who I am mm-hmm. and they made me kind of rethink a lot of the way I would treat people, where my anger came from, all these things. But these this whole tough guy you know, imagery thing. It's like I fought so much in my life for different reasons, not necessarily for survival, um, until I learned how to fight. Now, I'm not a tough, I'm a fucking, I'm a father, a lover, I have a wife, I have a great family. I will, I can fucking destroy anybody. I've fucking been training <laughs> fucking martial arts for fucking thirty years. By the way, he's wearing a, a Gracie Jiu-Jitsu shirt as we as we speak, so, and it, and he's he's ready to go. I'm, but that's the thing. I, it's like once I learn how to fight, I stop fighting. Yeah, you know what I mean. And then I realize where all my all that anger came from. But I'm I'm blurring the subject here. I'm getting off on a tangent. So, biohazard people tagged us as we were trying to portray this image of being tough guys. No. We just were, if you fucked with us, we would sit there, okay? You disrespect me, you get a smack in the face. That's how we grew up, that's how we treated, that's how we were. Well, that was, an, I think that's also an aesthetic of, of hardcore in general. You think yeah. about bands like Hatebreed, you think about Madball, you think about Blood for Blood, yeah. you know, that is part of the culture and that, which is part of, like you said, growing up yeah. in I, the streets. Hatebreed and, wasn't like that though, they didn't. Yo, you, you wanna hear some stories? I saw Hatebreed beat down the band Anal Cunt on stage at New England Hardcore Metal Fest. Like, yeah. so, and you hear Jamie talk about, especially when he used to drink and, yeah. and Boulder was still alive and, you know, yeah. just general, I had I had Lorenzo from Sworn Enemy and you tell, you know, hear the stories, they would get into brawls on tour, come back, you know, you'd see the next day and their hands are all jacked up and they're- Okay, so- you know, so I think I think there here, is something here, cultural. Check this out, hear, hear me out now. So remember I just mentioned about how this imagery thing Mm-hmm. That kind of goes with the fucking image. Our shit, we were fucking doing that shit before the band. Yeah. So our, our shit was because it was real in the street. Yeah, I'm not. But the thing is, I think I don't. I think it is real with those bands too. I don't think anyone's faking the funk for the most I'm part. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. I, Jamie, I love Jamie. I love Hate Breed. Fucking, I played in Blood for Blood. Yeah. So I'm not dissing those dudes. My point is, our shit was fucking. You know, dude. Stabbings to fucking getting stabbed to getting fucking having guns pulled out. All that shit happened before we were a band yeah. that people kind of said was our image. We we biohazard. We were real how we were. We didn't come up with an image. It was we didn't go out and get tattooed overnight and say let's be a tough guy band from Brooklyn. Yeah. So what happened within fucking a year of us starting to fucking come out and play. People would fight. It was like the biohazard shows were a meeting place between fucking, you know, BYB and fucking DMS, beginnings of DMS or fucking Sunset. All, it was, our shows were the meeting place. So suddenly we weren't allowed to play and we, people, promoters didn't want to book us because our shows were fucking, and then this was before there was Madball. This was before bands were coming up. There was AF, Roger just came out of jail. So AF hadn't been doing anything. Um, Chrome Eggs were already done. We were the only band. Sick of it all were doing their things. As much as I love them, Biohazard, we had our own thing going on. And 
the, the, the back to you asked me about this before. We weren't accepted in the New York hardcore thing, even though I it was my I you know flew that flag. Biohazard as a band wasn't part of that. Yeah, there's so much to talk about, dude. No, so, it's 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 so it, that's interesting to me. But but that kind of goes back to my other. So this is the thing. My sorry. Because I want to make the point here. So all those bands that kind of like, yeah, we beat so many bands down. And you know what? We did that shit. And then when we saw it ruining the scene, we started stopping on stage. We were like, yo. First it was like, we're the fucking backup. We're the the soundtrack for a fight. Mm -hmm. That was the the thing that became with us. And we laughed about it. It And then we realized, wait a minute. These are our people. First it was 20 people that liked us. And then it was fucking 30 and 40 and then 80. And then couple hundred and all of a sudden we're like wait a minute that crew we're down with and that crew we're down with and they're fucking meeting and they're fucking fighting and then so that was there was that social issue being among our, the family right then there was the business side where like promoters aren't booking us because when you guys fucking play everybody's fighting and there's every, then before you could never finish a show so then we like this is this is gonna fucking destroy not just the business side, forget the business side. This is going to destroy the scene because we're, we're, we were coming up and the scene was growing big, especially in Brooklyn. So what we did was we like, we realized if you see your two buddies fight, you stop them. You're like, yo, fucking stop being a bunch of fucking, you know, kids and get, you know, figure it out. Squash your beef. If you're pissed off because you're in the pit and somebody bumped into you, get out of the fucking pit. So we would stop on stage and we like call people out and say, yo, cut the shit. The fucking clubs, we, this is our last time playing here. They're not going to let us come back. If you motherfuckers fuck it up, you're going to fuck it up for everybody. Because when we're not on stage, we're in the crowd watching the other bands and we want to have a place to go. So that was, that was the stance that we took. Biohazard became the band and, and a lot of our friends and peers that were the dudes who were fighting hated on us for that a little bit. They, talk, they were like, yo, you guys are soft. No, we're not soft. Don't you want to fucking fight with somebody? Fight with us, and, and of course that wouldn't happen. But I remember many times we'd stop and two dudes are fighting, and they would you call them out. We're like, "Yo, what are you fucking asshole? I saw you punch a dude in the fucking face. You got beef? Take it outside. Don't fuck it up for everybody else." Yeah, but he bumped into me like little kids. Yeah. Like my son says to my daughter, "She, I was playing and she came up and she just kicked me." It's, it's like little kids. So then. The tough guy image became such a big thing, and people started to want to gravitate and have that. So they started trying to make stories of themselves. You know what I mean? And all the bands came up. I'm not saying that they weren't legit, but I think maybe their motive. They wanted to make names, and and a lot of bands tried to portray that. You know that whole thing, and then bands came up, and then all of a sudden there's a movement of the crew behind them that gets a name behind them. You know? Well, I think I think it it is part the image. And the reputation is part of the package. If, for example, you look at someone like 50 Cent, if 50 Cent wasn't shot nine times, whatever he was, yeah. he doesn't have the legend of being that guy. And having, it's like it's having a superhero origin story, right? It, it's part of the package and, it, yeah. and it's part of a, a genre. And especially of that time, right? This is the, the, uh, the you know, gangster rap taken off, taken, taken over the world. And... That bled into what was going on, and and listen, it's not to diminish the fact that, of course, uh, so much of it was a reflection of the reality. 
But once it becomes profitable, people are gonna say, "Oh, if you do X, if you put they they figure out the formula. Yeah. Oh, if you put this with this yep. and this imagery and this story, it's like this idea. Like if you're a rapper, if you don't go, if you go to jail, it helps with your street cred, and yeah. then you can and it it helps with your your whole thing of oh, when I'm rapping about it, this isn't bullshit. It's real. People yeah. want authenticity, but then at the same time, people will manufacture authenticity. Why? Because it works. Yep. Because people want something controversial. I think that happened a lot in that that genre, the tough, the tough guy, fucking. You know, now it's beat down is a huge fucking thing within the hardcore scene. That whole style. Yeah. And some of those kids, dude, look like you could babysit my kids. I love a lot of those great bands. They're fucking awesome. Some of the riffs are amazing. Yeah. But it's a it's a whole thing. It's got the genre is called beat down. Anyways, it's a, so it's it's it's. It's really not anything new, all right? I'm from Jersey. We, you know, we're home of bulldoze, all right? Yep. Came up with the beat down. Uh, so actually, some, someone I want to talk about kind of getting getting off this subject and really getting into the heart of how successful, really, Biohazard was. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I'd say, you know, kind of re- reflecting what I said before about you guys being the ultimate crossover band. And I truly believe that. And, I, and I'd say, and this is the crossover because I think it, mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's insane because in a, in a way you tied uh, multiple generations of heavy music together. So you take the hardcore element, you take the, it's funny you mentioned Sabbath because I hear, so a lot of you guys slow parts. I think about Sabbath. It's just, you yeah. kind of just use kind of different chords and stuff. Um, 100%. And then the way Bobby played and his shredding and that had this other element so you had the hardcore you had the metal you had the rap metal thing or the however you want to kind of genre name you would put that then you ha- you talk about the 90s which were kind of the peak of groove metal and bands like pantera and and i i wrote a whole article about this um you know talking about how you, and i didn't include you as part of the the sound because i think you guys were more of a precursor than actually a true quote unquote groove metal band, but you had a lot of that in the sound. And then ultimately you influenced and also kind of blended in a little bit with the new wave, the new wave, new metal trend, which happened near the end of the nineties. So it was like the cross section of all these different. And to me, having that crossover where you're kind of all of that and none of that at the same time is insane like it's it's you know there's just it's very few crossover crossover you're right I mean, you know never it's thought of that, that way. yeah and uh, well you can only do it if you really look at everything from, from above out, yeah. yeah and then kind of just look at like oh wow so especially like the uh what was the record the 99 record uh i forget the name of it um but anyway, i listened to that because i remember they would play the one song on sou and that's when i saw you guys open for slipknot actually yeah. at birch hill um but just, just seeing that was was really, really fascinating to me. But talking about the the, the success that you guys, so Urban Discipline went mm-hmm. platinum. Um, we didn't, nothing ever hit gold or platinum in the states. Okay, but worldwide, we sold fucking tons of records. Yeah, and then like didn't make a dime of, but we sold probably over like maybe five million records. You know. Yeah. So, but it's all by always by territory. I, I think. State and urban will probably go gold eventually one day. I don't know where they are now. Maybe like 400. They're probably just shy of gold. In the realm. And the uh, Punishment video, it was the most played video ever on Headbangers Ball. Yeah, that was a weird thing. That's crazy. Yep. Because it's funny if you think about it because 
you don't really think about Headbangers Ball and think of it as this crossover thing. You think of it as metal. Yeah. Right? But for yeah. some reason, you guys kind of spoke to whatever moment was happening at that at that time. And so you're, you guys are opening up. All of a sudden, you, you're this New York band, you know, mm-hmm. coming from very humble beginnings. And now you're you're on a major label. You're doing massive festivals. I imagine the... Um, the headline shows are getting much, much bigger. What was that era like for you personally? And, and what, like, was it anything expected? What was it? What, what, yeah. What was it? What was going on for you? Nothing was ever expected. You know, we, we were always, um, very humble to the fact that we were just a bunch of four dudes from Brooklyn that just played music that we wanted to play. And we never under, it was like, okay, you, when your girlfriend comes to your rehearsal and you're first getting together, you expect her to say, yeah, it's great. You know she has no idea, you know, what you sound like. Um, my wife, God love her, could name a few Biohazard songs, but th- she knows every fucking powerful song. So it's sometimes it just, things just hit um, with people and kind of gel. So I think that's what happened. It was, at first, we ex- you know, it was nice that our friends liked us, you know, but there was a lot of things, I think, that we did that we implemented I remember um, I did, you know, with every band, it's always, I'm the guy who just hustles all the, the ideas and the new, you know, different thing, different marketing ideas or whatever. Now it's digital. But I remember making a t-shirt, designing our t-shirt, drawing the symbol by hand, printing it up, getting one of my buddies in Brooklyn to print it up. We made like 60 shirts. And I came up with the idea. I said, listen, I'll, you know, we'll lay out the money. Everybody kicked in a hundred bucks or whatever. I can't remember what it was. But let's sell 30 of them and give the other 30 away. If we give shit away, people are more apt to like it. You can't expect them to pay for it, but they'll be, okay, wow, thanks for the shirt. We are a new band, and we kept doing that. So we initially invested a tiny bit of money to come up with 60 shirts or whatever it was. Then with the 30 that we sold, we bought another 60, and we kept doing that. We did it with demos. We did it with T-shirts. And then we were like, yeah, cool. Now we can get a real T-shirt and we use silks, you know, like real graphics. And then we've got the, the logo done and I, we used, the guy we used, it was called LP Printing on right by, around the corner from Lamore, who later, the guys from Roadrunner, this guy Felix and this other chick, and I don't remember her, her name, but they called me up and they were starting a company. They said, we want to do a... Bravado. No, it's Blue Grape. Oh, it's Blue Grape. Before yeah. Bravado. Before Bravado. Yeah, okay. So... They asked me, who do you guys use? I don't remember who it was. It, she was, she was. I don't think she was Dutch because the owner of Roadrunner was Dutch. But um, anyways, Felix eventually became the guy, but it was this one woman. Anyway, so I turned them on to that and they became Blue Grape. But we made a lot of decisions that were the probably the worst decisions, but the best for our career. And some of the great decisions that I thought I made were the worst for my career, right? So I remember... We had a, we got a record deal. We were on um, a label f- called Maze America from Long Island, and they saw, they had us. They had another band called um, I can't remember some like classic eighties. I can't remember the name of the band. Um, and then they signed right after they say they signed Cher Terra. We would go on, go on tour, and the record was fucking nowhere. Couldn't find it. Like, what are we fucking... Nobody can find our record. Because unlike MP3s... Back when it mattered that your records are in the store. Yeah. <laughs> so 
we came back from that tour and we went and a couple of us would go and talk to people in the office and the other and Evan and I would go into the fucking warehouse and fucking jack cases of our CDs <laughs> and we were like okay cool we'll sell them to the stores we would go to stores on tour and say listen we're playing in town take a couple CDs put them in there and if they don't sell today they'll sell tomorrow and we would and we'd sell shows sell CDs at the, at the show too and the kids that's how things started happening and then it worked so during that time we were stuck in this fucking shitty label and we got an offer from a small company for a small amount of money to buy our merchandise rights and at the same time we were trying to get off this label we knew we were going to go anywhere with them so we sold our rights the worst fucking deal the worst fucking thing you could ever do how long do you sell your like is it for like a year or is it just you recover the the advance how does it work i don't remember the detail but i remember we were locked in to such a shitty deal to get paid back to pay them back the money we were for every dollar we made like 10 cents would go back to paying them back the deal and they would use the 90 cents to fucking pay for merchandise pay for the shirts pay for the guy who travels around it was dude it was a giant trap Mm -hmm. bad decision because as we got more and more popular we were still locked in this shitty deal so we were selling tons of shirts and not making any money Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, And I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at 2Z. 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. So, um, but that deal that we signed gave us enough money to buy off the label. We And I remember we it was like, I don't know, like $12,000, I think we had to buy. We gave, labels like, you know, give us 12 grand or 15 grand, whatever. And we had, it, I can't, I remember we got enough, we were able to get, get an, 
negotiate enough money to buy off the label and we had a little bit left money left over and we paid for ourselves to go on tour with Exploited. Exploited is a punk rock band mm-hmm. from Scotland. And we toured the whole US with them and financed it ourselves. Like sub, It was our own tour support, so we gave ourselves tour support. With that record, um, we were already did a demo and on that demo was a song called Punishment, Black and White and Red All Over, Hold My Own and Wrong Side of the Tracks. We came back, no, not hold on. I can't remember, There's, they, those songs we ended up doing on, um, there was two other songs, I don't remember which ones, but Punishment and, and Black and White and Red All Over, Shades of Grey, mm-hmm. and one more song um, that later we came back after that tour and recorded it with Roadrunner. So while we were on that tour, we did, did, deal, did a deal with Roadrunner. At the same time, Warner Brothers came on and they said, we want to sign the band. We are like, it wasn't Warner, sorry, pardon me. Back, let's go back to when we were playing CBGBs <laughs> before we had a record deal. We were just talking to the record label, Maze, and Rick Rubin, somebody from um, management reached out to Rick Rubin. And Rick Rubin said... Bio has his fucking three chord thrash band. They'll never go anywhere. No big deal. Yeah, we we knew that. We just liked what we did. But you know, the ten people turned into twenty, and then turned into a hundred, and then turned to you know, we were playing in front of twelve hundred people, an unsigned band at Lemoore. We played CBGB, sold it out, and this dude comes up from Chrysalis, gives us a card, and said, "Hey, um, I was sent down here to check you guys out, and you fucking guys are amazing. We'd like to talk to you. Who are you from?" He gave me the card, Chrysalis. Who sent you? Rick Rubin. So Rick Rubin. Yeah? I gave him the card back. I said, tell Rick Rubin that we're a piece of shit hardcore band. We'll never go anywhere and tell him to go fuck himself. We, we were just doing our own thing. We tried to get record deals when nobody was interested. we like, you know what? Okay. We still like what we're doing. It's not going to change anything. I remember, do you know Maria from the press? Uh, Adrenaline? Yeah. Yeah. Maria, I used to try to get her our demo tape all the time. One day she came to Lemoore, again, for the third or fourth time. Hey, Maria, I'm from Biohazard. This is our demo. Yeah, I, thanks, guys. I think I got one in the office. I'm not interested. Okay. We're great friends. She's a great woman. Yeah, me too. I love Maria. So we broke into her car, put the fucking demo tape on her dashboard, so she had to fucking listen to it. We just always did shit like that. The industry turned their backs when the... The, when the crowds got bigger and bigger, the industry was like, oh, fuck. We can't deny them. So they came around. Yeah. My Gitter talked shit, mad shit about Biohazard. He used to write for Kerrang. He used to talk so much shit. They sucked. They fucking know, nowhere. Blah, blah, blah. Hated us. One day we played the Ritz, and our manager comes up, and he said, hey, remember that dude who writes shit about you guys? Like, yeah, he used to be an AF for a second. And to us, it was like, you're not Vinny, you're not Roger. And Gitter and I are great friends, great guy. But this is what happened. He like, our manager tells us, well, that dude's in the crowd. He's probably going to talk shit about you tomorrow in, in Kerrang. It was a weekly magazine in England, right? And Still is, as far as I know. Yeah, 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 it is. But I mean, it was like, a, now it's a different, you know, thing. But um, he, uh, <laughs> so he's like, all right. He's in the crowd. So Evan and I were talking about it. We're like, yo, fucking let's call the motherfucker out. <laughs> so we get on stage. We're like, it's not, it's not, we don't say, need to say the dude's name, but let's call him out. 
So we're on stage and Evan and I go, we go at it and like we call him out on stage and Evan and I look at each other. I'm like, yeah, fuck it. All right. He's right there. His name is Mike Gitter. He's sitting fucking right up there. Why does he, tomorrow he's going to talk shit about it. He's going to tell everybody how much we suck. So why don't you everybody turn around and tell him how much we, show him how much we suck. And the kids booed him and blah, blah, blah. Mike came backstage after the show wearing a fucking biohazard shirt, laughing, smiling, saying, all right, I can't deny it. You guys are awesome. Can I, can I actually mention something about this? Sure. Good friend of mine, Zena Sarfin, old uh, from, old friend from Brooklyn, yeah. New York, and she she was telling me that when she was coming up out there, going to Lemoor all the time, yeah. that it was like every show it was either Biohazard opening up, Overkill opening up, or Typo opening up. Yeah. And I think what a lot of what you're seeing is local band bias. That sometimes when a band comes from your backyard, you kind of you get to see them warts and all through all their stages of growth so you never got get to have this kind of mystique yeah. about them yeah. so in a way and think about back then is there was so much of the actual music industry in new york back then which i think that's yeah. probably it's not really quite as much like that now as it yeah. as it used to be and that's i think a lot of what it was is that listen e-town went through the same thing yeah, yeah. and you know, I'm hopefully I can get Anthony on and, and get the whole story about um, why they didn't get a bigger deal earlier. But it was the same thing. They were selling out shows, selling tons of records on their own. Yeah. But there's this something about maybe it was the genre of music. Maybe it was yeah. the quote unquote tough guy thing. Who knows? But it, or it's that that whole thing of, um, you know, kind of el that elitist sentiment. Yeah. Right. It didn't yeah. it didn't pass the that kind of critical smell test for that particular for that particular person, but that's that's pretty in interesting and it's good to hear. But I mean, I think that that story is also parallel. You hear like with Kid Rock, like when he got signed and how many people turned him down. You hear yeah. about. I think yeah. that's a that's a recurring theme about um, if you really believe in something and if you have something that uh, people are eventually connecting to. If you just hammered away, it'll it'll work. I mean, I don't know if it's quite the same anymore, but just because the music industry as a whole, yeah. the the windfall isn't the same, right? You're like yep. that Kid Rock album sold 10 million copies or whatever. And now there's just not enough record sales or things to kind of validate that. But yeah. it shows when you're young and you're hungry and you're you're out there grinding, things I think can happen. So yeah. That's pretty it's pretty interesting. I did I I did not know that. <laughs> so And it gets crazier. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Um so you guys explode. You know, the band, you know, when I saw the band. Yeah, I didn't answer. Your, oh, that was your first question. It's like, how did it feel? Yeah, so yeah. So it happened slower for us. You know what I mean? We didn't just see it. I remember seeing, we were in a, doing a small in-store, maybe 10 people were there in Europe when we got a copy of Punishment, the video. And we were just talking about this the other day, Danny and I. The, I remember looking at each other. We watched the video and our jaws were open. I remember looking at me like this. We didn't say anything. We just looked at each other. And there were people there watching with us. But I remember being like in awe. We were like, is that us? It's weird. <laughs> just like was, it, was it like a well-known director or like a, no, was it a we professional? No, Paris Mayhew from Cro-Mags, guitar player from Cro-Mags, and our buddy Drew, Drew Stone. Had you done a music video before? No, nope, it was our first one. And it was, um, it just, it, they pulled it together and it worked. It, but it did, it seemed surreal. It seemed like that's it's weird that it, it almost seemed like it wasn't us, you know, but it's also remember that time though, un 
only really professional big bands had music videos. Party. Not... We, we did do a video. Oh, you did? We okay. did. I forgot. We did a video of our demo for a song called Panic Attack. Was it shot? It was with our buddy Rich Ryan, who was our first manager. He's like, when you have your best friend manage you. Yeah. But that video, he would, he, the guy who had Hustle, and he would, they would play it before Rock Hotel shows at the Ritz. They would play it a little more. And we were just a demo band. So it was like no bands that had a demo had a video. He just worked at a video company and just pulled some strings to make it happen. I forgot about that. But, and the same thing, that was like a, we, we weren't making a video. He just happened to have a camera. And when we did shows, he would just film stuff. And then in the end, he put, just tried cut to make it, sense of just it. Just cut it together. Whereas Punishment was like, a, there was a treatment for it. Like it was an idea behind it. Even though like, I remember the Brooklyn Bridge scene at the end. We were, the shoot, we were done shooting for the video. And I looked at the bridge. I was like, "Yo, let's." We all our fucking all our crew was there. All the all the squad was there, and everybody. We like, let's go fucking on the bridge, and just just one pass of my verse in, in, into the chorus, walking over the bridge. Like, oh, we can't. We don't have permits. Like, fuck the permits. We don't. We're, this is all fucking poached, anyways. So we just took a whole crew of us. We went on the bridge and filmed. I don't even think the whole band was in that shot, but we just filmed it. And nowadays, you can't do that. Number one, you can't you without a permit, and the permits alone are thousands of thousands, especially in New York City. So a lot of that stuff was just made off the cuff, off the hip, and it's like had an idea. We just did it, you know. You still didn't tell me how you felt. How you felt when all of a sudden you're playing these festivals? Oh, yeah. There's a hundred thousand people out there, so and all of a sudden we people... did the biggest, the first thing where shit started to really like rattle our heads was we played Dynamo Open Air. Um, I think it was 19, it was like 91 maybe. Mm-hmm. We had gone there with, we were on tour with a band called Mucky Pup who took us on our first tour in Europe, which we owe a lot to for those dudes. Um, and then they played it and I remember we went to it and we saw it, we are like, wow, this is crazy. And the kids liked them. There's there like maybe 30,000, 40,000 people there. The next year we played during the day and I remember we got there and we were doing, like a lot of people wanted to talk to us which was weird. We were like, there's so many we had another interview first the first one we did you know was like that was cool and then another one and then it was Vanessa from MTV that she was the English version of Ricky Rockman now this was at a time when Roadrunner wasn't Roadrunner yet right like no. they were still building their yeah. their name and their reputation yep. so so even though and I think for the era, you know, I came out and got involved. Roadrunner was like, it seemed like they could break any band in Europe and they had such, their brand was so strong. But I guess you guys are at a time when you, in a sense, helped establish the brand. Yeah. And there's a whole other crazy thing. Biohazard is a, we have a great relationship with Roadrunner, my favorite label we've ever, we're, we're ever on. Um, where I am now at New Day, it's, it's a different, whole different conversation. But at the time, they, they were signing bands for seven records. Yeah. We signed to them for one record. And that's a whole other story, which is unheard of. That is unheard of. So they did a phenomenal job. Um, they were, everybody at the label just loved metal and loved what they were doing. So it was easy. It was like being a bunch, with a bunch of friends and everybody. It, it, it seemed weird that things were just worked the way they did. But Case, the owner, put together a great group of people that did a great thing and built it up. But we were there. The Sepultura was on the label already, um, and things were just starting to hit with them. Um, but there was no Life of Agony yet, no Typo Negative. There was no Fear Factory yet. 
Um, or they had like the death metal bands. Kind mo- of they time. were more known for death metal. We were yeah. an odd thing and for King them. Di- did King Diamond? King Diamond was there, yeah. yeah. Um, so we were an odd and weird thing, and I think it was a gamble for them that paid off. But it was things started to blow up for us in Europe at the Dynamo that Dynamo show, and I remember we played in front of, you know, it was I don't know sixty thousand people, and we fucking killed it. But it was a weird thing for us to we like fuck it. This is such an odd thing. You know, we're, 60 people was like oh, what we were used to. But now it's 60,000 people. We just bit down and fucking did what we did. And the next Is that on YouTube? I feel like that probably, should be Probably, yeah, yeah. Got to check that yeah. out. Um, and then a couple years later, we came and headlined, and that was like 160,000 people, which was insane. But that first show was like, this is like the big league. This is weird. We, we felt like we didn't belong. We didn't like barricades. We hated all that whole rock and roll shit. Mm. But and we hadn't un, we didn't get to a point where we understood that, that there's a part of the business where you got to be like, well, it's a business. The bar- barricades aren't there to destroy your show; they're there for safety. Well, not only that, there's also an element that I'm sure I've talked about this on the podcast, but I'll I'll reiterate it. the difference. One of the difference between the kind of underground world of, of heavy music and then when you graduate into the professional world is you realize, oh, we're here to entertain you. Yeah, it's not. You jump on the stage and do a bunch of stage dives and everyone beats each other up and then the crowd makes you look good by going crazy. It's that at a certain point you have to learn how to perform and entertain. Yeah. And can't and you can't just use the crowd participation as a crutch. Exactly. You know, which which a lot of bands and they'll kind of say, Oh, well that's you know, it, it, it disrupts the energy and I think there's a point to that and but there's obviously there's risks you take and you see that with what happened to Randy from Lamb of God. You look at how many bands have gotten sued, how many bands have gotten into fights with people on stage. Yep. Uh, that obviously, once a band gets to a certain level of uh, their business, they have they have to protect themselves. We were the first band to have in our genre to have to deal with that shit. I know it's it wasn't. I I I remember thinking to myself like this. Nobody, we were like. A, like knocking doors down and, and we, being the first band to go on tour with bands that coming from our genre and coming from that world that you described where like the, the audience participation adds to the energy of the band and your reputation in the show. Um, going on tour with Creator and Slayer, we were like, it was new for us to be having to deal with, you know, light pyrotechnique on stage and lighting shit on stage and barricades that are separate you from the crowd we hated that i remember being on tour fishbone we did a full u.s tour fishbone <laughs> that seems so strange to me and but was I, it strange but we toured fucking david bowie uh you guys toured with david bowie david bowie fucking prodigy what are you chili peppers what, hold on what, what, cyber seal it was this is the thing we have our <laughs> there's a certain kind of people that stereotype biohazard in the states Outside of America, people look at us more as like we were innovators in a certain kind of style. So they don't they don't pigeonhole us with the hate breeds and the slipknots. That's or so funny because that's fronts. literally the inverse. What I said earlier about the local bias yeah. is that you when you have in a sense when you're from far away, people put you on a pedestal and they see you. Yeah, they they almost see you un, unsullied by your your past. Yeah. So and I think that's more accurate, by the way. You know, yeah, the, but I mean, it makes sense what you say. I mean, you, people like like Gitter saw us come up and and you know play in front of like twenty people probably. You know what I mean? When you probably weren't as nearly as good. Yeah. So that it's hard yep. to unlearn uh, seeing the, the the warts and all. Yeah. 
Um, what's the name? That's a great title for um, So the experience of going from um, the small scene in the small clubs, it, we never left that behind. So it wasn't like it went to our head, especially myself and Danny um, and, and being the core members of the band who were there since the beginning. The ability to always go back to that is, I mean, so valuable to me. It's like, to me, like, I'll play in a room this size and I'm, I'm super comfortable. Put me on stage at an arena and I'm still, I'm fine with that too. So the, I can separate the two and I, and there's value in both. Um, whereas I think straight up, once Evan got a taste of fucking that arena world, he did not want to go back to this. Yeah. And hate, and it was like, he started to diss it, started to talk shit about it. And we sat there and we're like, this is, that's who we are. The, the Barina shit is just a product of our hard work that just reached more people. But stripped down, that's who we are. We're a band that came from hardcore metal in the roots of fucking small clubs in New York City. Did that get worse when he got on television? Of course, you know? And that, to me, he, um, I think he lost sight, um, in my opinion, lost sight. I, he was re- he really liked it at the beginning, and he just got bored of it, you know? And he got mm-hmm. interested in new things, you know? And those new things were his toys, driving a Hummer, you know, fame and fortune. And that's his choice, you know what I mean? I don't fault him for that. I, I, I've always wished him well. He left us in some really bad situations, but I never wished anything bad on him. Yeah. It's a whole other conversation. But for you, you us... Guys, you guys don't stay in touch or anything? Is no. it It's kind of rough? Yeah, he split. He he quit. You know, we got... We did a reunion back together. When we split up in early 2000s, I went on to, and did a bunch of other bands. And he um, went on to porno. Danny raised kids. Um, and the one regret... Why did you guys break up the first time? We kind of... He was going on his own path. And I think he... He left us years before. He was on, you know, Married a Porn Star. He got into porno and shit like that. And Did you ever feel like that uh, adversely affected your guys' um, of kind of reputation? Yeah. It, to me, like, it's a gray area. You know what I mean? Like, if a rock and roll guy, you know, in porn, it's not like he became, uh, you, know, um, you know, a rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> that would be more shocking. It's head rock. It kind of fits with... Yeah, know, it's, not, it's not far off culturally. Yeah. Um, even though he's Jewish and and, and speaks Hebrew, but um, for us it was like you know what you we're just we you grow up in different ways you know what I mean you, two a couples married you grow you still love each other but you're not in love and you you get divorced that's kind of how it was but the one regret I always had in the back of my head was not getting back together with Bobby our original guitar player yeah well <clears throat> and, Bobby he had so uh, I got to actually develop a relationship with Bobby. Um, when he, he wasn't in the band, I remember that. Yeah, no, I don't. Did, I yeah. don't know if he ever played with us. He turned me on, you guys. Oh well, but, but anyway, so so through, yeah. through a mutual friend, this guy Damiano. Um, yeah, Damiano. We would um, we would rehearse in uh, near Allentown, Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, at our bass player's house, and so he would just start bringing Bobby around, and you know, we just obviously I knew who he was, and yeah. um. And he was just the nicest guy, and we would just yeah. hang out and get got to know each other. Um, so I was so happy 
when I found out that he actually, and I know he had gotten sober and, you know, was really changing his life. And he just, he's one of those guys, you can just tell he has a big heart, you know, and, um, but there was, he had some issues substance wise. Is that ultimately why he ended up leaving the man the first time? Or was it that, or is it just, it, this is what went down. Um, we were working on a record and I had cleaned up my act, you know, like I had mentioned before, after that I fell off, but, um, I cleaned up my act, and I, I Bobby still had a, um, a real bad drinking problem. And we had helped him out. Danny and I didn't, you know, even though we cleaned up our drugs wise, we stopped drinking. Mm-hmm. How can you support your brother who has a drinking problem if you're sitting there with a beer? So th- while we were touring with like fucking Ozzy and Pantera, which is huge parties, we were trying to stay sober, you know, dry just to help Bobby. Um, anyways. He, we, got, we were working on a record, and it ended up being a record called Mataleao. And I would kept, we were writing and writing and writing, and I had all these songs. Bobby would show up and, you know, in rough shape, going through rough times. And after a couple months of writing for this record, he, he saw, you know, he made some comments about what we were working on, and we got in an argument. And I was like, um, I quit. I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm you gonna, quit? Yeah. So I'm like, I packed my shit up. I said, I'm done. I quit. I'm going to start a new band. So I packed my shit. That night, um, Evan came by my stoop. We were sitting on the stoop outside my, at 58th Street. And he said, yo, whatever you're doing, I'm down. I'll, I'll, I'll be your bass player. I said, okay, cool. So a week went on, and then um, Danny called. He said, yo, I hit, you're jamming with Evan? I said, yep. I'm going to do something new. All right, I'm down. I said, cool. So we were going to start a new band. In retrospect, I wish we would have because we would have left Biohazard as a great thing that we did and it would have been a new thing. Um, but what happened was that all the like the label, the managers, the A&R guys, everybody that, we, that were behind us started putting shit in everybody's head and they were like, yo, the, Bobby's got his problem. It's not... Your guys, you don't, you shouldn't destroy, let him destroy what you guys have all built together. Yeah, once the, once the business and yeah. the name, you, listen, you, you can see the lengths people will go through for the name, yeah. for the, for the brand. You'll see like bands both touring under the same name and then get no lawsuits. Yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. You mentioned, you mentioned Queensryche. This happened more than a few times. There's this thing yeah. with uh, Venom right now, I guess the guitar Venom players. Yeah. Exactly. And, because the truth is, it almost sometimes it doesn't matter who is in the band. It's people want that name. They want that yep. name brand. And the truth is, you spent how many years building that name up? So now that has a, an intrinsic value yeah. to it. And we are, at the time we are at the peak of our career. So we went that we let that get into our heads, and we we're like, you know what? They're right. We worked hard. We got our shit together, and I'm writing music that I fucking loved. Let's keep it going, and so we decided. Okay, let's go do it. Well, as a three, the majority of the band, we made a deal with Bobby, and Danny and I were like, whatever. It just you know, let's just move on. Let's get, give him whatever he wants, and hope he you know gets his shit together. So it's, it's this say, weird way where you almost kicked him out without ever having to actually kick him out. And I guess it's weird. I, I to me like I I quit. Yeah, and that became. Um, yeah, it wasn't on purpose, but it just ended up. Yeah, that way. it wasn't. It wasn't malicious. I wasn't like, 
that was my motive. I was done. Yeah. I was done with the bullshit. I'm not going to drag somebody along that, you know, anymore. And that's how I looked at it. And I've told Bobby this since then. He didn't know that for fucking years. He thought that it was a conspiracy, that Evan hated him, and that Evan pushed him out of the band. Yeah. So for after we Biohazard eventually, you know, split up for good, it's like 2003 or so, even though we did a record, we were doing a record um, that came out in 2004, maybe, or whatever. We were split up before it even was public, but... I started a couple new bands, a band in Brazil oh, called Andra. Well, Suicide, Suicide in Suicide City. City which... Yep. And then, um, but in the back of my head, I always, I wished we, Bobby and I had such chemistry, loved him. And Danny and I always said, if Bobby got his shit together, we, he, in a second, he'd be back in the band. We couldn't find anybody that could fill his shoes. We had you know, a bunch of guys who just did, you know, came close in some ways, but just personality-wise, well, that's a, that's a recurring theme on this show, you know, talking to so many bands that dissolve is that that chemistry. It's gone. That you, you, some people you can never really replace and you can find someone as good as them, but it, it's still not them, yeah. you know, and it's not, sometimes we, I think we undersell the personalities. Yeah. We undersell the energy that, that like someone's energy is you can't define it. Right, you can't. You, there's no way to describe it. There's no way to to put it in a, in a math formula. And there's Bobby has a thing. Yep. The way he like right is he Marty Freeman? Is he English? No, but his energy, his what he brings to the band is is biohazard. Yep. Right. And that and even now, I guess you guys are going to a situation where, uh, you did a record without Evan, and you yeah. toured. So we had the same experience. All right. And and so Bob so. People, somebody, a bunch of people reached out to me. You know, would you ever get Biohazard back together? I'm like, nah, it'll never happen. Danny, Bobby, and Evan will never be in the same room together. And then one day, I get a phone call from Bobby. Billy, what's up? Who's this? It's Bobby. Bobby Hamble? Yeah. What's up? Holy fuck! What's up, man? And some, my heart is like, remember the fucking the Grinch movie when you were kids. He gets a little heart. His heart gets bigger and bigger and mm-hmm. bigger, and, he and turns, breaks the scale. <laughs> yeah, that's what I felt. I was like, "Wow!" And then even talking about it now, I feel so good about it. So I was like, "That was the thing that I regretted not ever having a chance to make one make amends." I mean, I crossed paths a couple times, and it was you know kind of okay and cool and ill and a lot of different weird ways. But so we talk, and he's like, "You're not gonna believe this." I said, "What?" After like a ten minute of catching up over some small things. He's like, I, I fucking met Evan in Manhattan last night. We had went out for pizza. I said, What? I couldn't I was like, no way. You fucking you didn't kill him? You didn't strangle him? We laughed. No, it was cool. And slowly the band got back to not slowly, we got back together. And it was there was a, there was one weird thing that should have been the telltale sign of what was waiting for us on the future. We got a tour with we did one show. Two nights at Lemoore. Then we went on tour with Corn. Lemoore was still open in 08? Yeah, they moved to Staten Island. Oh. Oh, I heard. Oh, I, I, now I remember. Yeah. I remember that. Okay. And we did a live recording, and I still have it. Never yeah. released it. So we did two nights, and we re- jammed once before that as a band. Once. And it was just to hang out. We went through three or four songs and talked the whole time. And, and kind of like fucked around as friends, you know? Dropped pizza, drank some, you know, not, not drank some beers, but we hung out, <laughs> and it was great. 
Um, and so we played the show Lamorge, and it was fucking great. And then we went on tour in Australia with opening up for Corn, without any rehearsals. Evan showed up without a bass. I thought you guys would bring it. What do you mean we would bring it? You're the bass player. Fuck. And so we had we had it was Borrow Fieldy's bass. <laughs> it was no, that didn't happen because him and Fieldy they didn't get along. So make a long story short, that was a sign. Um, Bobby, Evan still wasn't really didn't care about it so much, but being back together with the original guys. It ignited something inside of me that I was like, holy fuck. I thought I was done with Biohazard. And I always told people in the press all the time with Suicide City and Andrew, I was like, and Blood for Blood, I was like, it was a chapter, I'm done. It's I moved on. I'm, you know, I love what I did and I did everything I wanted to do with Biohazard. Except when I never, but inside, it was except getting back together with Bobby. And we were on stage together again. The fucking camera, it was like, that's my partner. It's fucking awesome. Did you Just, did you see a uh, difference in the crowd or the reaction or, or kind of old fans coming back or anything like that? Yeah, it was, there was, I noticed it was odd because we were, felt like we were so far removed from the new way the new crowds were. Because mm-hmm. it was such a different thing. It wasn't 1996 anymore. Oh, no. You know, it was 2008. And it was like a different thing. But we're on tour with a huge band that we took out on their first tour and they played with the backs of the audience who Bobby, Danny and I watched them every night and Lior from Limp Biscuit, who was, I mean, from House of Pain at the time. And we knew the three of us were like, these guys are going to be fucking big one day. But they got, we we're like, guys, you got to turn around. It was like one Face of their the first, first tours. Their yeah. first tour. Yeah. It was Corn, Biohazard, House of Pain. So damn, I wish I had a time machine to go check that out. It was they were fucking <laughs> awesome. Jonathan was great, but they were so nervous. And F- Monkey and Head were like they were playing with their backs to the crowd. They just didn't have we like you got to be like fucking we're motherfucking corn motherfuckers. <laughs> and they became that, but they were very they were just it was their first tour. Every band for the first it's yeah. a nervous thing. Oh yeah. But um, anyways, so we toured and a lot spent a lot of time on tour. Biohazard and had great some great times. Got along so great. Evan was doing his own thing, but we all got along well. And we're like, this is working. Let's do a record. So we started writing a record. Everything was cool. And then shit hit the fan. Evan got involved with some really hefty, crazy shit and dropped off the face of the earth. We were like, what the fuck? We were in the middle of doing a record. So we had to finish playing his bass. I sang the parts that he needed to sing. And we were like, what are we going to do? And we get these random phone calls about some, you know, download, some things were going Like really... some legal stuff or some drug stuff or... So you can't really talk about it? Everything. I can talk about it, but I don't give okay. a fuck. But, okay. um, I, you know, I got more important things to worry about right now. So I don't care. I'm just going to tell you it's crazy shit. It's like VH1 behind the scenes shit. Yeah. We were concerned with Biohazard and we were like so hot being back together and doing a new record and then the dude is up and gone, living on lamb, hiding out, and then we get a call. He can't do it. He's done. He quit. Like, was it from him quit? or was it from like a representative? Through fucking management. So we reach out and then shit starts popping up on the internet. And you, do, you can do your research. You find out what I'm talking about. But um, so now he quits. And we're like, what the f- How do you fucking quit? We just got, they were going great, whatever. And then we're like, okay, this is fucked up. Now you fucking really fucking stabbed us in the back. So we talked to our buddy Scott who played bio and guitar when we were at, right before we split up and you know Scott Scott Roberts I don't know do I know him? 
So he comes in in the band. No, so he <laughs> played in a band called Spud Monsters. He played in Blood Clot. He played in um, Robert uh, Alan Roberts from Life Agony. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Had that, they had that band with Will from Agnostic Front called Not Spoiler. It was like a rock band. Oh, Among Thieves. Among Thieves or Amongst Thieves? I... Yeah, he was with that in that band. By the way, there's a new band called Among Thieves now. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So I, or maybe it's one is amongst, one is among. I don't yeah. know. But yeah. So um, Scott came in and played bass, and we played our first show together again without any rehearsals. And he was doing vocals and bass. He played, yeah, he because it's two vocals. So yeah. he sang. Evan, his voice just Evan's low, and I sing high. He fit, and we we did that. Played download, which wasn't that great, um, but. Then we did China. We had an offer to be played China, and that was fucking cool. And then we we're like, fucking, we can do this. Scott fits. It works. The then it just worked, and then we started to. We we're like, you know what? With the band without Evan, it's like Van Halen without in a small hardcore way. It's like Van Halen without David Lee Roth. Yeah, it was different. It's something new, but it was different. But we're not sure how people are gonna react. So react to it. We talked about having Scott sing Evan's parts on the record. We're like, you know what? Let that be what it was. It was a reunion. It's the end of the reunion with the original guys of Biohead. So we released it. Probably a bad idea in a, in a sense. But and that was the 2012 record? Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was called... Um, means to... No. I'm forgetting his own own album names. I think I might have... Do I have it here? I'm so involved in Power Flow that my head is like... Um, oh, I didn't write the name down. <laughs> Dude, don't know the own. So I think I might even have the so Wikipedia. Make a long story short, the uh, reborn in defiance. Reborn defiance. <laughs> he doesn't know. <laughs> I have it tattooed on me. Oh reborn. my. Reborn. So the so is is any so, of Evan on there at all? The whole record. Yeah. So we decided to leave it, his voice on there. Oh, okay. And we looked at so it you like, didn't you know really what? do a record without him. It we, wasn't a beginning of a new era of the band. We looked at it, it was an end of an old era. Yeah, and but we were touring for that record with Scott, um, and we couldn't do videos, making photos for the record. Everything was just up in the air. Yeah, but the fire Scott had the fire that we all had, and it just seemed to work, and people accepted him. It was like it was he a had big a, deal. but he kind of had. I I think I saw him with you guys, and maybe it was like one of those um, hate breed shows they do around the holidays. Yeah, it was. I definitely saw you with him where I was like. Or maybe I watched video online. I don't know what it was, but being like, damn, that dude kind of looks kind of like that could be Evan, or he kind of sounds he, like it. It was enough that it was. He was great. He was all, he, he fit great. His vibe was great. He was all about the music, loved hardcore, loved what we did. He was really into it, and it was fucking awesome. So we toured. We kept doing it. And and then we start, saw the crowds getting bigger and the people accepted him and the, like the biohazard name started, the brand started growing again instead of being stagnant or declining. It started to grow and we were like, wow, the show's getting better and better and and we like, cool, fucking, let's keep this going and then we started to work on a new record and he was a, we got into some issues with him. He just grew out of it. Mm-hmm. He was fucking rigor in New York in the union making tons of money and leaving his family to go on tour for making a little bit of money it didn't pay for him so I think that started to harbor some issues with him and eventually we're in the studio working, doing the new record and we had some exchanges back and forth and he quit and we're like fuck here we are again so now we've been um, I came home did a solo record 
at the same time, Sen and I... When you did a solo record. I did a solo record. What's it called? It's not out yet. Oh, okay. This is you because, can't just be dropping dropping bombs like that, not you know. So like we supposed to know about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then Sen and Roy came in and started talking to me about this new project. They had like three or four songs. They said, "Are you into you know working with us, writing and producing?" I'm like, "Sure." I played a bunch of some songs, and I said, "But I, I'm not into doing something. I want to do the solo record." And then I don't know what's going to happen with Biohazard, but I want to do that. I'm like, okay, cool. We are that's cool. But so I was writing some music for him. And we kept working on ideas. Send I would send songs to send. He'd come in on a Sunday night, lay some vocals. I'm like, that's fucking cool. And then we keep doing that. Three, four, five weeks later, we have like a bunch of songs. And then um, I got back into the solo record. And then they call me like, oh, we're gonna go in the studio. We're gonna. What do you think about Fernando? And I'm like, Fernando. I played in a band with him called Endra. He's a buddy from Brazil. He's a great dude. He's a fucking badass drummer. You think he would want to play? I'm like, I don't know. Reach out to him. So they. He was still in Brazil at this time. Yeah. So they reached out to him, and uh, then one thing, Christian from Fear Factor. I'm like, Chris is my boy. So then we were doing the songs. It was, there was still no name for the band. Then, um, so my focused. I went in the studio where NRG doing the record and did some stuff here, and I'm like, I look around one day and I'm like, this. We're laughing, having a blast. I'm like, this is a fucking band. <laughs> And then we just became a band. Yeah. So kind of just happened. Um, and so I put the solo record on hold, and I'll get to it, finish it one day. But now it's all about power flow. Now that's all I do. I'm so into it. It's like the, the fire ignites under, you know, on a different torch now. Yeah. It's still, I still love Biohazard. I still talk to Danny. Danny came to see us in Jersey last week, a couple weeks ago. Bobby was stuck in the hurricane or he would have been there. We still talk. We're still going to do Biohazard. It just, you know, when it happens, it happens. You're going to do it with another singer? Uh, yeah, we have to. I, you have can't be, it, That formula I love. I write my music like that. Even my solo shit, I write for two voices. And, yeah. you know, I just like that. And same with Powerflow. Sen and I sing. He's the main dude, but I sing. And I like that, having that extra flavor to work with. You know what I mean? Well, it's, it's funny. I, I think about the van halen comparison you made and it's a lot of times it's easier to do the record to do it without that original guy who's like in a way sometimes i think one thing you can say about evan um musical ability or not is like some people are just stars and you know and there's just nothing like you can they're just and because of that they're going to be treated differently they're going to act differently and Oftentimes they're gonna essentially play by different rules than the rest of us. Yeah. Not saying like like to me, I see. I think you know you're a star too. That's the reason why um, the band got to where it got to. But you have a different relationship. Like you've kind of conquered whatever that thing is. Even yeah. me, I've had to de- deal with that and kind of deal with the ego and get some separation from that and have a yeah. healthy relationship with that. But um, but it always and you try and move forward with that and then. It's easier and it's it's better in its own way, but it also it's like, will it ever have that other thing? You know, yeah. like you almost like it's almost like a playing with the devil. Like like you have to give up something for the other thing, yeah. right? Like yeah. and it's and it's that's you know why, like that's the thing. Rock stars are made when they're young because it's you don't have nothing to lose and you throw it all out there, and shit. When things just click, it clicks. You know, the I remember though, 
when we split with Bobby, we were, went to go see a band at the Garden. And we bumped into Bobby on fucking 40, on 8th Avenue or something outside the Garden. And we had some words back and forth. But I remember Bobby said to me, he goes, yo, you guys fucking kicked out the wrong dude. I'm like, and then we didn't get into the, you know, semantics of the word kicking out. But I was like, what? He's like, that dude, and he pointed at Evan. He goes, that dude will destroy fucking Biohazard. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But he was, you know, I was so, we were so psyched about, it was a new band. It's like Van Halen with Sammy Hagar. They went on and sold more records. But the music changed. This image, yeah, it's everything different. changed. It's just it's different, different yeah. you know? Um, and I'm a David Lee Roth fan. Love Van Halen with David Lee Roth. But it cha- it changed, you know? And when Bobby, now that Biohazard is with Danny, Bobby, and I, I see where his what he meant. And he didn't destroy, there's different types of destruction. When Bob, when he got into porno, a lot of our hard, like the, a lot of the, the heart and soul of our audience and our followers and our supporters, our family, didn't like that. They were like, that's not what you guys stand for. You're about rising above shit. And, and as much as I, I'm not a prude, I love I watch porno. My wife, you know. Most whatever. people do. <laughs> Whether they want to admit, yeah. admit it or some not. Some people just say they do and some people lie and say they don't. But yeah. um, there's a certain, everybody, I've known a lot of women that have gotten into porn and, and a lot of times shit happens to you for whatever reason, you get let that shit push you to a point where you need to have attention and you do whatever you need to do to get attention. And if you make money off of it, group like, Women who, um, groupies are, are women who didn't get attention. Sluts are women who didn't get attention, the right attention they need. You know, maybe this will probably piss off a lot of people. Um, and to me, it's like you, um, the girl or the person who wants to be next to you, next to someone who's in the limelight, needs something, there's something missing in their life. And that's what they try to gravitate to. Um, but anyways, well, it's definitely touchy su- subject matter. I think when you get yeah. into the the ideal of you know there, a the double standard yep. between uh, you know women who engage in certain activity and men. I think you have that. I think you have the yeah. the idea. It's with, both ways. I said women, but it's yeah. men too. Yeah, and the dudes um, I know that I've met, same thing. Yeah. You know? Well, listen, I you know as, as someone who has a. Uh, um, wavered and and had my issues with 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 things like that i think it it definitely did tie to self-worth and and um lack of you know trying to fill some hole or or, or whatever but i think it's in, in, important to say that you know and, and also i have i have friends like you who are involved in, in, in porn and kind of it's just different you know and i think it's difficult when you're you're in a band and you have one idea or or have um like I said, that brand of what that means. Yeah. And then someone else makes other decisions. And you might say, hey, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that, but it also affects us. And, and the other side, too, being a band, like, like you know, we were always a band, like, you know, don't judge me. My life is my way. But yet, something that's a little bit different than my thinking, uh, I was judging. Yeah. So not to ju- Who am I to fucking judge? You know what I mean? Yeah. But... There was a lot of things that just f- didn't fit with it. Anyways, we're, we're going so yeah. Well, so it's it's candies. yeah. I think I think that's a that's a tough. Um, that's that's definitely a difficult thing, and and I'm sure it it affect the band in a lot of ways. But um, there's a couple of things I want to ask you before before we go. Um, 
so talking to so I got to talk to Send Dog a little bit, and he was just telling me. Oh, you did on the podcast? No, not on the podcast. Oh. Just at the at the show we played. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, talk. Played, you know, and, show, yeah. and a little bit at the show, and then a little bit at the uh, the listening party. Yeah. But he was, you know, telling me how difficult it actually was to get like a record deal, and how, in many ways, the, you know, the industry has changed. Yeah. You know, and I I see, a I guess. I, you know, I think I'm pleasantly surprised by how hard you guys actually are working the record. Like, it wasn't like, because you, you know how it is. How many yeah. quote unquote super groups come out there and expect their names to essentially carry the project to yeah. whatever success they expect? There's oftentimes there are um, expectations that are not realistic. And also, people who, you know, that come from earlier eras yeah. don't don't have a great grasp on how things have changed or not willing to change. And you guys don't have any of those problems. You guys are embracing uh, the new, like we've, you know, you've, we've, you've talked about, you know, the, the dedication to social media and, yeah. and creating content. You guys are actually out there on the road. You know, you're not headlining yet. You're opening up and you're, you're doing some good shows, but um, how can you kind of describe even the process going to before now, like when you didn't have a record deal, do, do you agree with Sendog that that there were challenges that, that you weren't anticipating? Or yes, hundred um, percent. I, I sorry, having a lot of Send did some startup things too. He had SX10. He had Cycle. Was he? I think he was involved with Cycle Run. But he's done other stuff where he started things up. But like like projects or companies. Both. Okay. But other bands. He had a band called SX10. Um, but I think for me, still always having one foot in the underground and proudly waving that flag of DIY and doing so much with the different bands that I've had, um, it was real, very realistic. A band called The Suicide City I had with Jen from Kitty and some friends from Florida, a band called The Groovniks. And my buddy Danny from Long Island is a yeah, and great you were, drummer. And you were grinding out with Suicide we did, City. We did, like. we did five U.S. full U.S. tours, no record label. Take Mac Sunday, mindless self indulgence, fucking Guar. Um, yeah, and you guys and I was you know I, I listened to some of the music uh, before this and it it had it was a very aggressive melodic punk inspired, but it had like balls to it. It wasn't just yeah, it was straight. It. Straight pop punk and That's it, it. Yeah. you know, but it, it almost had a, a little um, My Chemical Romance vibe to me. Like I could kind of see a little similar, especially with the singer. It was more than anything, yeah. but we, um, we, which I love. We I'm actually a, before those guys, yeah. But I'm a but I love them too. Yeah, and it and it it did it had it's more like we were into the musical side of metal. Yeah, it's all music, but I'm saying like the melodies and and instead of just. Um, we pay more attention to writing things in keys, whereas Biohazard, to me, I stumbled on a certain kind of style. Yeah. And studying piano since I was six, I learned theory to like it was blue in the face, and then threw it out. And the punk rock, I let it just play what comes out of you. Yeah. And I remember Bobby said to me once, he goes, "You know so much theory, like, oh, but everything you write, it's like so chromatic, so hard to play over your music. Can't you write something like in key? I'm like, like what? Tell me, what do you want me to write? <laughs> goes, I don't know, harmonic minor or something. Okay. The song I wrote from that was Punishment. Yeah. And then the whole thing is based. I'm like, how's this for you? All right. That's pretty cool. So it became one of our biggest songs. But, anyways, um, so back to with with Send Dog and Power Flow, I think I was 
more realistic in how things were gonna go. I knew that this be, the name on paper, it's it means means something. It looks cool, but it doesn't mean anything. Fucking record sales wouldn't mean anything at all in in the business side. The biggest reality for me, and my misconception was we worked with this company called Pledge, and Pledge is fucking genius. It's like it's it's kind of like a um, what's well, a crowd crowdfunding it's a crowdfunding thing but it's based it's for bands that are already established yeah so you, you have to have people you have to have a following so I thought that our names would be enough for the following but power flow was an unproven thing like you we I expected not expected I was betting on people being down for the project the pledge just by the names on the paper but there's nothing to listen to they had no idea oh Could you be, guys you guys did a pledge before we, you had any music out there yeah so it oh, you did, can't do that. I know. It's a fucking great thing, and then I'm going to do it again for the next record, and it's genius. It's such a well-done thing. Yeah, and to give you guys some, I'm sure a lot of people already know this, but the difference between Pledge and some of the other crowdfunding things is they help you a lot more. They So they take a bigger chunk of, of the money, but they are a lot more hands-on and do a lot of the legwork for you yeah. and help you with the promoting and kind of they're, they're a lot more involved. Yeah. And if you have um, this, the 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 platform is cool, so you can see a lot of the the interaction daily with fans. It's a, it's a cool thing. It's like cross between Kickstarter and Facebook. Yeah. But if you have the, the skill, the knowledge, and the know how, and the time, which is the most important. So thing. So it did it work? Yeah, it was worked. It was okay, yeah. it did work even um, with, even without having music out yet. Yeah, but wow. just nowhere near as successful as I, as I thought. And yeah. that was the only thing that I I judge wrong yeah but you know sometimes reality comes out kicks you in the dick and puts yeah. you puts you in your place keeps you humble right yep um so the other thing was record labels i i'm biohazards on nuclear blast who i love and we took i took power flow there and they were down they were into it and sen had already been while i was doing the solo record and writing songs for him he was like him and our manager deb were trying to get a deal without a name but it was just sen dog's new project Either, but there were no names, so they were shopping what was became Powerflow without any members. It was just a sense, and I think that's why it was more difficult for him. If, but believe it or not, you actually did have something. You know, if, if, if Nuclear Blast was there, then yeah. So I went to Nuclear Blast saying, "Hey, this is what I'm doing with Sen." And still, there wasn't Christian. There wasn't. We, I, I mentioned Roy, but Christian has a big name from Fear Factory. So Fear Factory Biohazard. Cyber sale and downset. Yeah. It's a bigger draw, but we still hadn't had a name yet. So nuclear blast, they were interested. They were like, "Cool, we, I like this." One of the main guys there was like, "I fucking love Cyber sale and I love you guys. It's a perfect mixture. Let's do it. Let's try to make something happen." It, you know, the business. Yeah, a record deal. You're talking. You know, the the back and forth can take six months. Yeah, so or longer for, for Sen. He was just like, "What did they? What did they think?" I'm like, "They fucking, they're down." Let's let's let it simmer there, and let them come to us. We go in desperate and say, "What's we want to do something? Do something? We're gonna show our hand. Let let it happen." Okay, week next week. What's going on? What's going on? I'm like, it's nothing yet, dude. Fucking this other label. Deb's got this label. They're Canadian label. I've never heard of them. Like, yeah, it's an offshoot. Dine alone. I know Dine alone, but who's New Damage? And they're like, he's like, ah, it's looking really good. They up their offer, and then what's going on in Nuclear Blast? The whole thing turned into, I don't know, man. I, 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 I'm Sam was really antsy. It turned out to be a great decision. 
we um, we didn't pursue nuclear blast and we went with nuclear uh, new damage <coughs> bro they fucking blew my mind there's just the, the attention to detail and they it was more like I felt like um, they they were cool with my vision I, everything that all my ideas they're open to you know I, what about this that's a great idea cool let's do it and I kept waiting for them to say nah I can't afford that can't do that you know as a I don't smoke or drug I'm a straight you know alcohol free drug free guy but I had ideas <laughs> that sends a big smoker I'm, I think well, that, weed should be fucking yeah, that, legal that is part of his personal brand and, yeah. and part of Cypress Hill so it's and it's, it's, it's also yeah. part of our brand like everybody smokes except me yeah. just because I don't smoke doesn't mean I'm, I'm not advocate for it I should be legal I think that it, it's ridiculous that it's not um, but so coming up with ideas like oh, let's do powerful rolling papers and give them away with the vinyl that's, you know, all these, they kept going with my ideas and taking it. I had another idea of, it was going to be, you know, the stickers you put on there, members of Biohazard, Cypress Hill, Fear Factory. It was going to be a scratch a sniff. We scratch it, it smells like weed. <laughs> but we couldn't pull that together. So all these things, the label was cool. And here we are, you know, like we're doing, we're on our third tour. We're going out Broody, Broody next. And it's a are you guys, do you have anything with Europe planned? We, yeah, we did. And uh, not did. They wanted us this summer. And we're like, nah. I did the same thing with Biohazard. We stayed in the States. We want, we're going to stay here until next summer. So it's tour after tour. That's it. Just try and build it and build it. I'm not trying. We're doing it. Oh. Yep. <laughs> They're building it. That's if, it. If you build it, they will come. Bro, you know. It's, you <laughs> shake one hand at a time. Yeah. You know? Unfortunately, that's how Trump became president. But <laughs> it's also how Obama became president, which is much more cool to talk about. Trump, I, but on Trump's subject... I saw him. Did you see what he fucking said about Puerto Rico? What? I mean, he said 50 things. That it's, are... n- it's not. He, I, I, as a human being, you can strip the politics aside, strip being the fact that you're an asshole, a rich, spoiled brat, privileged, whatever. Humans. We're all fucking humans. That's it. There's one race of humans. The, the, the divisiveness of the cultures to, to keep everybody at, you know, Fighting each other, it's a lot easier to control, but that's a whole other subject. He said, he compared the loss of life to, from Sandy. No, no, that's Sandy, uh, Katrina. To Katrina. No, Katrina to... To, to what happened to Puerto Rico. Yeah. He's like, we had thousands die, and Puerto Rico, you're like, you're taxing us. This is so heavy on us. How many, how many lives have you lost? 16? He, I couldn't, I was like, are you fucking for real? It's a... He's full of that's there's well he's he's he what he is doing is he thinks the job of being president is actually being a PR person. So what he's doing is he he has to spin everything so that it looks like he's doing a good job or that so that's that's his job. It's not actually helping people, it's taking a picture with someone with the you know, it's like these people who are philanthropists, but they have to make sure their names on the building. Yeah, like it's not that I'm giving money; it's that I need to advertise My, that, yeah. I'm, that I'm that I'm giving, and, and that's what it's about. Is that he is in full full time PR mode, and some people are susceptible. That like, well, he said it's going very well, so it must be going very well. You know, as as a idealist as a kid and, and growing up Catholic, I remember learning, and it was a big thing in our household in the Bible. Do unto others as you'd have done to you. And I was like, that's because it says in the Bible. And then I became realist and realized 
a lot of the things that I, I were my ideals weren't, didn't really fit with reality. But that whole thing, it's not do unto others because you want them to do good unto you. Do unto others the right way because that's just the right way to be. Well, it's, it's how you would like to, you have to set the precedent. It's yeah. it's not about um, people expect to me the the karmic version of that is I do good things, so good things will happen to me. That's selfish. Yes. It's exactly. to me the, the 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 better idea of it is kind of almost in the kind of the mythos of Christianity is the idea that I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. Yeah. Because that's what I believe in, not because I, I even though you know, back to me, yeah. you know, even though the the whole idea, I guess, of Christianity is you can get forgiven and all that stuff, yeah. but just the idea of I'm setting an example because it's what I want to do and what yeah. I believe, and I I believe it's not necessarily that it'll come back to me, but hopefully that example will inspire other people to do that, yeah. and and I think and there is also a karmic thing if you're an asshole, more than likely shit is not going to work out for you. You know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, you can do yeah. crazy things and it does, but generally people want to be around cool people. I've yeah. noticed. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, man, I think that's a good place to wrap it up, man. Uh, I don't know, man. I think we we can probably do like we can do the volumes, you yeah. know, to be like part one, part two, because, you know, there's so many other things I kind of wanted to get into, mm-hmm. but there's so much detail. It's like maybe we need to wait for like the uh, the, the the documentary or something. <laughs> to get the get the yeah. full details I'll, I'll, anytime dude i'm always here to talk all right man i really appreciate it thank you brother awesome. yeah
So that was the track Resistance from Billy's new band, Power Flow, which is definitely, I would say, characterized as a super group. The lead singer is Sendog from Cypress Hill. On bass guitar, we have Christian Oldie Wolbers, X-Men alumni. And we also have Ray Lozano from Downset and Fernando Schaefer on drums from the band Worst. And that's from their self-titled new album. And they've been around, they've been touring with like P.O.D. They were out with Brujeria. And I think they're going to be really busy. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, that was a lot of fun. I love Billy getting getting to hear all that stuff about what was going on, especially during the early 90s, which where things were just changing so, so much in the music world. It's really fascinating to get an insider view on that. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. Keep listening to the show. Tell your friends. And, uh, you know, I'm going to, what am I going to do now? I'm going to work out and then eat some pie, you know, some pumpkin pie. Because, you know, it's the it's the holidays. And I, what, what I call this is like bulking phase. You know, I'm not gaining weight. I'm just, you know, I'm putting on, putting on mass. Like Mac from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So you guys put on a little mass too. And then run that shit off. Peace out. Mamba out. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.